Welcome to the second of three podcast interviews with the faculty of the educational initiative entitled Stroke Prevention in Atrial Fibrillation, Updated Guidelines, and Expanding Treatment Options. These podcasts were produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim. The content for this podcast was adapted from an interview with Cynthia Sanoski, recorded in December 2011 during the 46th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition. Dr. Sanoski is Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Jefferson School of Pharmacy at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Sanoski will discuss preventing stroke and atrial fibrillation, including risk assessment and guideline-based recommendations for antithrombotic therapies. Welcome, Dr. Sanoski. Thanks. It's good to be here. Well, let's begin by talking about implications of a patient having atrial fibrillation. Does atrial fib have any effect on mortality? Well, actually, atrial fibrillation does have an effect on mortality. Initially, people thought that atrial fibrillation just caused thromboembolic complications or perhaps it had an effect on symptoms. But when we started looking at the data, it does appear that atrial fibrillation can have a negative impact on survival. And the thought is is that perhaps by causing strokes and by causing these patients to become debilitated after these strokes, that they end up dying as a consequence of the atrial fibrillation. Well, as you mentioned, one of the potential consequences of atrial fib is uh, risk for stroke. What effect does atrial fibrillation-induced stroke have on patient outcomes? Interestingly, in patients that have stroke, in those patients that do have atrial fibrillation, it turns out that their strokes tend to be more debilitating than patients without AFib that have strokes. In addition, atrial fibrillation has been shown to prolong hospitalizations. It's also been shown to impact not only, as we mentioned earlier, short-term survival, but it's also been shown to have an impact on long-term survival rates as well. What are some of the methods that are being used to assess the risk of stroke in patients with AFib? Well, if we look at the most recent guidelines that we have, which we consider to be the American College of Chest Physicians or the CHEST mm-hmm. guidelines, those were released in 2008. And according to those guidelines, they recommend a risk stratification system called the CHADS-2 criteria. Basically what this is, it's an acronym for the various risk factors for stroke. C standing for congestive heart failure. H is hypertension. A is age of greater than 75 years of age. D stands for diabetes. And then the S, which is squared, stands for stroke or history of transient ischemic attack, or TIA. That is the risk stratification system that's currently recommended and that we've used until the guidelines get updated. However, if you look at the European guidelines for atrial fibrillation, they have updated their risk stratification criteria and have now recommended also using the CHADS-2 VAST criteria. How is this different than the CHADS-2 score? It has additional risk factors incorporated into it, and that includes vascular disease, patients with coronary disease, patients with other types of vascular disease. It also incorporates and gives one point for age of 65 to 75 years of age, so placing some emphasis on patients who are a little bit younger but still elderly. And then it also includes the female gender as a risk factor, too. So they've recommended in the European guidelines for those patients who have a CHADS-2 score of 0 or 1, for then you to subsequently do the CHADS-2 VASC scoring, because it's possible that they may now be deemed to be high risk. Interesting. What are the factors that place a patient at risk for stroke? Well, if we look at these risk stratification criteria and stick with just the CHADS-2 scoring system, again, looking at congestive heart failure, 
hypertension, age, and according to these criteria, it's age greater than 75 years of age, diabetes, and then if they have a prior history of a stroke or a TIA. Now, there's these other risk factors that are out there. We'll have to see if the American guidelines incorporate this. We might also consider vascular disease, patients who have had a history of MI, perhaps aneurysms. There's also consideration being given to the less elderly, 65 to 75 years, and then even female gender may be a risk factor as well. Because of the risk for stroke in patients with AFib, let's talk a little bit about the drug therapies that can be used to prevent this complication. What are the guideline-based recommendations for using antithrombotic therapies to prevent stroke in patients with AFib? So if we look at the CHESS guidelines from 2008, uh, these guidelines still use the, the CHAS-2 risk stratification criteria, and the primary purpose of that risk scoring system is to determine whether patients are at low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk for stroke. So low risk would mean that they have a score of zero. And going back to the CHADS-2 criteria, congestive heart failure, hypertension, age of greater than 75 years, and diabetes, patients would get one point for those. If they have a history of a stroke or a TIA, the CHADS-2, 2 being the subscript, they would get two points for that. So if someone has none of those risk factors and has a score of zero, they would be determined to be at low risk. According to those guidelines, uh, they would be suitable for aspirin therapy. Now, if someone has a score of one, meaning that they have one of the, um, the major risk factors, then these patients would qualify for either aspirin or warfarin. And the guidelines do place an emphasis on the fact that these patients should probably receive warfarin over aspirin just because it's been shown to be better than aspirin. Anybody who's considered to be at high risk would have a score of two or more, and the guidelines unanimously recommend warfarin for those patients at this time. What do the guidelines say about the use of the newer antithrombotic therapies for AFib? With the advent of the newer antithrombotic therapies, with dabigatran being approved in October of 2010, the CHESS guidelines, as I mentioned earlier, were released in 2008. So they have not been updated since the newer antithrombotic therapies have been approved. However, what I can say is that in January of 2011, the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association released updated guidelines for the use of dabigatran for atrial fibrillation. And what they said for this specific drug is that they would recommend dabigatran to be used for patients who are considered to be at high risk of stroke as an alternative to warfarin. So we should be considering it as an alternative to warfarin in these patients. And as a final question, one of the major side effects associated with all of the drug therapies you've just mentioned is bleeding. Are there any methods for assessing a patient's risk of bleeding on these oral anticoagulant therapies? Just as they have developed a risk stratification system for determining a patient's risk of stroke, interestingly now that once we place patients on these certain therapies, they've also developed a risk stratification system called the HASBLED scoring system. And this was a risk scoring system that was validated based on patients who had received warfarin therapy. So we can't exactly extrapolate this risk scoring system to patients receiving the newer anticoagulants. So this is really just on patients that are receiving warfarin. And it includes risk factors such as certain drug therapies, if they have a high risk of bleeding, if they have liver disease, if they have renal disease, there's a variety of factors. But this is the first time that we actually have a scoring system that can help us to determine maybe whether patients should receive warfarin or perhaps another anticoagulant, maybe aspirin therapy, maybe they're at very high risk for bleeding for warfarin. So it gives us another tool for looking at these patients. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Sanoski, for being with us today. 
Well, thank you for having me today. It was a pleasure talking with you about this very important topic. This concludes this podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Sanoski about preventing stroke and atrial fibrillation, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in February 2012. To access this activity and other education opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash prevent stroke.